1: Several years ago, when we started Hot and Bothered, we put out a call for romance readers and asked them to call in and leave us a voicemail and tell us what they love about the genre, how many romance novels a year they read, why they read them. And we got a voicemail that stuck with me so much that I have since become friends with the woman who sent in the voicemail. Hi, Vanessa and Ariana.
2: Jessica Luther here. I am 37 years old, and I live in Austin, Texas. I couldn't even begin to tell you how many romances I read in a year. I'm going to estimate it's probably around 50, because there are 52 weeks in the year. I'm a journalist. I work primarily on stories about gendered violence. It's very hard work a lot of the time. It can be emotionally exhausting, and I love The fact that I can pick up a romance novel and know that no matter what, that it will have a happy ending and that I will feel happy at the end. And I count on it. And it means that I can trust whatever's happening in the book, that I will feel good when it's over.
1: When Jessica and I were on the phone recently, I asked her what romance novel she was reading at the moment. She gave me some recommendations, but then she asked me, wait, Vanessa have I told you to read Julianne Long? And I was like, no, who's Julianne Long? And she said, oh, you have to read How the Marquess Was Won by Julianne Long. I love it so much that I've started reading it once a year. It restores my faith in humanity. That Zoom call was about six weeks ago. I picked up How the Marquess Was Won immediately, and I am six Julianne Long books later. Hot and Bothered as the gift that keeps on giving means that I tweeted about how much I love Julianne Long, she wrote back, and I was able to get her on the phone. What we have for you today is a brief conversation between me and Julie. We talk about what it's like to be a romance writer, why Regency as a genre keeps lasting, and what makes certain heroes sexy. I'm Vanessa Zoltan, and this is Hot and Bothered. An interview! Today, we are lucky enough to be joined by Julianne Long, an amazing romance novelist who I am like making quick work of her entire oeuvre. The first book of hers that was recommended to me was How the Marquis Was Won. But I have to say, Julie, that my favorite so far is It Started with a
2: Scandal. I love that one, too. Do you have favorites of your own books? It depends. I have different reactions to different books. With, it started with a scandal. What stood out to me very strongly when I finished it was how much I missed spending time with, like, I felt like I was saying goodbye to friends. Yeah. And every book has a different kind of feeling at the end of it. And I felt wistful. I'm like, oh, I loved spending time with little Jack and, and LaVey and Elise. And now I don't get to anymore. Yeah. But I'm so happy you love it.
1: Well, tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get into writing romance
2: novels? <laughs> Let's see. I've always wanted to be a writer. I've always, from the moment I could learn how to write, that seemed the whole point of learning to write was to be a writer. But um, life took, you know, a number of twists and turns, and I ended up in the corporate world. I worked in global finance at Levi Strauss for a while. And I played in bands in San Francisco. So I played guitar and sang and wrote songs and stuff for a while. And that seemed to sort of satisfy that little bit of urge. You know, the writing aspect, the men with the long hair, that kind of thing, drama, passion. And when the dot-com boom, when the first one came around, I uh, had a web design company and I did graphic design. And then the work dried up, the bubble burst. And I was kind of broke. And most of my friends had moved away. And I I needed to do something. And this is what I did. I like I took that opportunity to finish the book that I always wanted to write. I thought it would be fun to write something that I loved reading. So I started and I wrote The Runaway Duke and I wrote it and I got an agent and published it. And that was back in 2004.
1: It's amazing. It's like the dream. So you write books. And again, I am a new reader of your romance. So I am not as acquainted as I should be. But you are a writer primarily of Regency romance novels, correct?
2: Yes. Yes.
1: So tell me about that decision. Why do you think it is that women in 2021 still love reading Regency? What is it about that time period that allows us to escape differently than contemporary romance?
2: I think a lot of the... Blame, responsibility could be laid at Jane Austen's door because her books were so unforgettable and so vivid and so captivating. We would just want to be in that world. They've captured our imagination and kept it for hundreds of years. But it also, I mean, historical romance gives you an opportunity to transcend the ordinary. Because with a contemporary romance, the settings and the people involved and the circumstances we could all more or less relate to. With a historical romance, we can only guess. It, what it does is it, it transcends and lifts us more out of our ordinary world in the way that a dream or a fantasy would, I think, with long gowns and fans and horses and carriages and, you know, dukes and the Regency as a scrim, sort of, where we can sort of project our modern needs and, and desires. And I think it does provide that kind of a backdrop that's like a Zoom background, you know, you're like, or, you know, that we can lay any story against that particular setting. We said it in Mayfair, and we put them in dresses, and for the most part, the context is historical. But because this point of these stories is for women to see themselves reflected, I think, and to feel appreciated and to escape, that's what we want to do. We want to adapt that circumstance to whatever modern standards there are. Does that make sense? Yeah. I also think that it's like catharsis, through
1: melodrama, right? Like, I'm not trapped the way that a character in Regency romance is trapped, right? Like, she, this character, is like, I'm gonna have to become a servant and live a life of servitude if I do not find a husband. And she's trying to outrun a piece of gossip, right? She's like, as soon as this piece of gossip hits the suburbs, (laughs) I'm screwed. And like, that is obviously not something I can relate to, but I can relate to the feeling of feeling trapped, a feeling trapped in a bad relationship and feeling like, I mean, I remember this when I was 29 and I just feel so silly that I felt this way at 29 now that I'm 38. But like I was 29, I was in an unhappy relationship and I was like, but this is my chance. It's too late now to try with someone else, which obviously isn't true. But I feel like you can't say that and take yourself very seriously at 29 and the United States is a liberated woman. But you can read about yourself in these like much more trapped dynamics.
2: It's true, I think that's, a lot of studies have been done about fiction in general. It helps us build empathy because we do rent that gamut of the story. And there's a safety in particular Within romance, like you said, it's a catharsis, but we also, it's a comfort zone where we can live out those tragedies and see the possibilities. And so it helps you to imagine the possibilities of freedom or change, I think. Oh, I love that. Yeah. People ask, why would you be interested in romance when they're so similar? But aren't they all the same? That's one of the questions that we have to contend with. And the anecdote I often volunteer is like if you're sitting on the bus and there are two people on the seat in front of you and one of them says, you know, that guy had a crush on in high school. Well, he started working in my office. Why is that interesting? It's because once you start caring about the characters, everything is interesting. Even the most mundane things about your friends are interesting, right? And so that's why it's an empathy. We want to empathize. Romance creates empathy. And once you know those characters and like them, you're invested in their story, even if it's a familiar story. That's just what humans are. We want that connection. And it's more easy to escape into that world, to forget yourself for a little while, I think. And I think that's probably the key to its continued appeal.
1: Is there something specific about that world that you enjoy writing? Like, do you love writing about the balls or the social structures of the time and how difficult they were to break? Is there something about Regency that you're like, this is fun
2: to play with? Oh, I do. I love the social structures. Like with, it started with a scandal. We have people from two different, very different stations in life. And I love the friction and the possibilities for conflict that presents, you know, it's kind of thrilling and sexy as these two people try to work that out. That's a big part of it. And just the entire, I have just sort of love that part of history. I don't know who sold me on it more, Jane Austen or Amanda Quick, you know, but I was always just very sort of entranced by it. The clothing, the carriages, the mores, the history, all of that is fun. But I think you nailed it when you said the social structures.
0: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com
1: slash host. And so something that you pull off so brilliantly is you often have two characters where the man, understandably, given the time period, has a lot more power than the woman. And sometimes not only is it gender dynamics, but he is wealthier. He is her boss. He is the captain of the ship and she's a stowaway on it. And yet the relationship still read, even to a contemporary reader, is so consensual. It's not this like icky feeling of, well, of course she's going to sleep with him. He's her boss. I'm wondering how you go about threading that needle. Are you like, so she has to beg for it because he has the power? Like what sort of rules do you have in order to navigate that?
2: I think that what you're describing as consent, it's it's a natural, organic outflow of regard that two people have for each other. It's in a, a situation where, for instance, Captain Flint or LaVey would not abuse their power. They might want something profoundly, but because the regard for that other person is so complete, you can't violate that without violating yourself. The power is equal with two people who care about each other. There are stations in life, but there are the fundamental emotional foundation that these two people have built to that point in the story. And it's unthinkable for them to violate that.
1: I mean, it sounds like what you're saying is you write the characters well enough that they build up enough trust. (laughs) that, Like the dynamic is well written and therefore. Well, that's the hope.
2: (laughs) It has to be an outflow from that. I mean, I think I can imagine there are romances that take advantage of a dynamic that is less fluid or forgiving or mutual, but um, that's not what I find sexy, really. And I think that mutual, truly fundamental knowing that two people have for each other is really sexy. That's what I try to do when I write is build that into the story and the characters.
1: So many of romance novels in general are these series, right? So the books that I've been talking about so far are part of the Penny Royal Green series. And so you have a couple of settings within these multiple books, like there's a school for recalcitrant girls that many of the characters sort of weave in and out of. And there's the pig and thistle, the like pub that many characters weave in and out of. And I'm wondering, because each of your books stand alone. So I'm wondering what you think it adds to the books to have multiple books set around a certain number of fictional realities.
2: I think it adds <clears throat> texture to the, the characters and stories. I always feel like when I'm writing, like I'm a giant standing over a town and peering down over it, you know, so that I can always I'm going to tell one part of a story, but I can see everything else that's going on. You know, I can see the story happening at the pig and thistle, even though if we're focusing on somebody else. I think that, whether it's subliminal or overt, provides a certain amount of texture to the story and it fleshes out the world that these people move in so that it makes it feel more real for the reader. At least that's the hope. And it's also fun for me. It's fun for me to imagine all of these places and the things going on inside these places and life continuing even when I'm not telling a story set in a particular place in the series. Or like when you're composing a piece of music or, you know, there's that underlying foundation, a theme that runs through it. I feel like that's kind of part of it, too.
1: I've never read anything like Miss Marietta's Academy (laughs) in any other romance novel I've ever read. A School for Poorly Behaved Young Women? It's fantastic. (laughs) Why don't you tell little people what it's about? And at least two of the novels of yours that I've read, it is a, a major
2: setting for love. It just seemed like a fun place to, you know, first, you get a lot of women together and women of various ages. And so you have women who are teachers, girls and women who are students. And um, it's an opportunity to show growth and challenge. And it's a saucy environment, too, because it fascinates all the young men in the village. You know, naughty girls go to that school. You know, what are they doing there? It just seemed like a lot of fun to do.
1: It's also just fun because it sounds like a really good school. Like, it's actually a loving place with, you know, some structure to it. But it seems like one of the only ways a girl could get a proper education. So I was imagining, I was like, I guess if I was 12, I would, like, try to behave badly to be sent to school. Because <laughs> otherwise I'm just, like, sitting around needle pointing. But I, some people may not have ambitions beyond that. No, one of the things I like about your characters is that they are... Self-reliant, they are feminist in so many ways, and yet they are also basic in a lot of ways that I find (laughs) wonderful, right? There's, like, the coveting of bonnets and the, like, really loving a certain pair of gloves or, like, cherishing how beautiful a fan is. And I'm just like, yeah, you can be a feminist and still, like
2: want a bonnet. I just love
1: it. (laughs) As a fellow basic, I'm like,
2: true. Well, it describes every woman I know or every woman I really care about. You know, you want to write about people that you like and relate to. And that's it. We're all we're we're many things. So Julie,
1: when you go to remember In pre-COVID times, you would sometimes go to like a cocktail party and you say, hi, I'm Julianne Long. I am a super successful and awesome romance novelist. (laughs) That's going to be my new greeting. Yes. What is the reaction of the person who you're speaking to usually? And what's that conversation look
2: like? You know, truthfully, most people are intrigued that you write a book at all. (laughs) You know, I remember signing once where people would stroll by. It was at a mall and this guy strolled by, pick up a book, look at it, put it down. Oh, I could do that. Stroll off. You know and there's like there's like six of us, and you imagine you know the we're all trying to like restrain our middle fingers. It's that kind of thing, but I'm at the point where I'm like, if you're comfortable enough with what you're doing and who you are, you can't really take offense, right. You know you can educate, and um I'm like, we'll read the book. I think that's an interesting thing. Why is that acceptable to assume that all romances are the same, right? And why is the reference point always Fabio, which goes back what forty, 50 years? And what other context or topic or subject is that acceptable? So that's interesting to me. I don't know the origin of that.
1: My friend Chloe, whenever anybody mocks romance novels, she goes, oh, which one did you not like?
2: Yeah, oh, good one,
1: yeah. And they're just like, oh, I've never read one. And she's like, oh, I don't feel comfortable saying I don't like something until I try it.
2: Yeah, I'm curious about the origin and the acceptability of that particular prejudice. You know, because they've been around forever. I've read romances that were written in the 30s that were delightful. It's a reflection of women's concerns, you know, women's fantasies, how they change throughout history. And um, I wonder if that's part of it, if it's because women love it so much. And also people do like to stratify. People like to rank. People like something to feel superior about. You know, that's just the way our human nature is.
1: I feel superior to John Updike. (laughs) So, and I enjoy feeling superior to him.
2: It's all good. I was raised in a house where we had, you know, everything. And I mean everything. And I read, you know, the Bhagavad Gita, Rosemary Rogers, you know, everything. And we didn't differentiate. And I think that's probably a good part of my upbringing. Yeah. Here, here's some books. Read them, you know, enjoy. Explore the world. That's how Virginia Woolf was raised, too. Well, then there you have it. It worked out for you and Virginia Woolf. (laughs) So
1: everyone else, try it. (laughs) Throw some books at your kids. You're like, you'll be fine. It strikes me as stupid that men don't read romance novels, straight men, the same way that it's like always confusing to me why like more straight men don't take dance classes and yoga classes. I'm like, that's where the women are. And I just feel like romance novels are like amazing instruction manuals for straight men of like. This is how we want to be treated. Right. There's this perennial question of like, what do women want? And I'm like, there are thousands of books that (laughs) describe in like precise detail what it is we want. We dog ear the pages and
2: hand them over. (laughs)
1: Exactly. I'm like, here's a Penny Royal Green book. This is what I want. I want you to not only be okay with the fact that I have a kid from a previous marriage, but fall in love with my child entirely. When you find out there's something wrong with my kid, leave a party in the middle of the night to like go out in the rain and find them and then be very concerned about communicating to me quickly that you found the kid, right? Like it's not just the sex stuff.
2: It's love. Yeah. It's it's the language of love. Yes. And the language of Carrie. It's those intimate moments that make the sex sexy because the sex is an expression of the caring of those people. That's the thing. A marketing of romance has been almost too successful in that it's always been pointed at women. And, you know, and we could say it's becoming more porous, but the confines around gender roles and gender preferences, until those become a little more porous, fewer men will be inclined to reach for that automatically. But I do have male readers. One's a circuit court judge. One was a code breaker in World War II. You know, and they, they're not ashamed. They found out it was fun. They had a great time. They liked the history. They liked the people in it. But there would have to be some fundamental change in how the books are marketed in order for men, most men, to feel comfortable in picking them up. And that would be wonderful. Imagine that world.
1: I will say that I think that romance is one of the genres that is like most on the cutting edge, right? Like it is one of the most diverse places in the publishing world. It is a place that seems to be just like always one step ahead of the rest of mass culture as far as its progressive social politics.
2: You're probably right. And I think that's because it reflects what women primarily are thinking and caring about. Yeah. Throughout the ages, it has done that. But it's fascinating to me, the tropes are so different because they reflect the women's concerns over time.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Like damsel in distress novels are like much less popular now that we are not trapped in our houses in the suburbs.
2: Yeah. There's an author named Faith Baldwin that I love that started writing in the 30s. And I was fascinated by, with her books, that they were women who had jobs and the one was a pilot. And a big deal wasn't made out of it. This was just who they were. Right. But some of the tropes were choices between two lovers and nowadays people can't stand that. Oh. Another one was exhausted executive and the secretary who, you know, he's overworked and I read like four of them like that. You know, the I'm going to rescue this man, this strong man.
1: Right. The other thing I just want to say to our listeners before we say goodbye is how funny your books are. Like I have not read any other book in which a statue of the David has its penis shot off <laughs> and then hits someone in the head. Like that is not something that could happen outside the genre of romance. <laughs> and it is to other genres loss that that only happens in our genre.
2: got to have fun with it. And I remember writing that scene and it was late at night when you get really punchy, you know, and it was just, you know, you got to entertain yourself while you're writing it. But also, you know, you can't have light without the dark. And it's the kind of thing that makes the other stuff stand out in relief. Yeah. If you do it properly. So well done. Everybody
1: go read Julianne Long. I suggest starting with the Penny Royal Green series, but Julie, do you have a place that you recommend people start with your books anywhere? all the places? Uh,
2: it depends. It's What's interesting to me is everyone seems to have a different favorite in the series and they all have different reasons for it. Mm-hmm. I know that what I did for Duke is a real popular starting place. Mm-hmm. But starting at the beginning, because there are story threads and themes that run throughout the whole series and uh, the characters change and grow, I think I would recommend starting at the beginning. Mm-hmm. So the Perils of Pleasure is probably a good place to start.
1: Okay, everybody, you have your assignment. Ariana is putting it on her reading list right now. I'm watching her do it. <laughs> And everybody report back as to which is your favorite. This has been an interview from Hot and Bothered. This episode of Hot and Bothered was produced by Ariana Nettleman, edited by Molly Baxter, her first episode editing. Yay, Molly. We want to thank Jessica Luther for the voicemail that she sent three years ago and also for allowing me to become her friend and making this recommendation. And of course, Julianne Long for taking the time to speak with us. Go read her Penny Royal Green series. Keep paying attention in your feed because we'll be dropping several more interviews in here before On Air starts. But definitely stay tuned for On Air, which is launching on July 2nd.